episode of EdTech Hour is brought to you by the Educational Psychology Technology Program at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. The Chicago School's mission is integrating the values of education, innovation, service, and community. The Chicago School provides students innovative and practitioner-based learning experiences in which they're able to positively impact others around the world and address issues faced by underserved populations. Through collaboration of university administration, faculty, and students, the EdTech Hour was created in order to pursue our vision of innovation and global outreach. This monthly podcast series will include thought leaders from around the world who will discuss relevant issues centered not only on technology, but also the impact of technology on humanity. Speakers will provide listeners with stories of how they have impacted learners, employees, and communities through the pursuit of understanding how individuals learn and use technology to improve performance. This show provides a global medium to share and promote various issues and developments and learning and how professionals are utilizing technology. By listening to the show, I hope that you are able to develop a unique insight into how you can incorporate similar topics and trends into your own professional settings. I look forward to learning more about our topic with you throughout this episode. So today's guest is Dr. Carl James. Dr. James is a professor in the Faculty of Education. He holds cross appointments in sociology, social and political thought, and social work at York University in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Dr. James is widely recognized for his research contributions on race, gender, class, and citizenship. He recently released his new book, Color Matters, Essays on the Experiences, Education, and Pursuits of Black Youth. Thank you for being here. <laughs> Thanks for having me. So Dr. James, I wanted to start off, um, if you could talk a little bit about your experiences as a youth and community worker in your early career. Uh, that, that's very interesting. In my early career, I, I think that's what set, set me into looking at issues of Black youth. And, and of course, I, I worked in a low income area in downtown. And many of the youth were would come and they were very, very interested in basketball. And, mm-hmm. and of course, and so I would facilitate their, their work in basketball. I also would facilitate the interest in whatever other occupation or career they might have. And I, one of the curiosity I've always had is how are they doing in school? I would talk to them and also and at that time too, many of them were recent immigrants to Canada and therefore they were experiencing that whole adjustment to Canada. Research at that time would account for their situation in school as due to their adjustment to the new Canadian situation and joining their parents. I challenged that because I don't think it was merely an adjustment, I thought it would have also to do with something with the racism and discrimination they might have been experiencing in school and the assumption that teachers might have about their potential to do academic work. So when I saw them playing basketball, yes, that might have been an interest, but it was also, I think, one of the ways in which teachers might have encouraged them to do that rather than enabling and supporting them as they pursue academic work. what I did actually was to play basketball, which was much of what they were interested in. And many of them were, were black males. I would also have education sessions. So 
to be part of the basketball team, you had to be, you had to come to workshops pertaining to academic work, et cetera, et cetera. And in the meantime, I would have discussions with the parents. I, I, I was a yes, a young person at the time, but I was, I, was, I could have been their big brother, so to speak. Uh -huh. And so at the same time, I would talk to their parents, et cetera. And I also went to the schools, made myself known to the teachers. And so, so that set me up into looking at youth, the experiences of youth, the academic trajectory of young people, and the ways we have come to make assumptions about the potential of young people academically and socially. Yeah, and that, that's that's nice because it, it it is like when you don't look at a student, when you only see them in in one way, and that's how you peg them. You do. You have that perception of like, okay, I, I'm just, I'm just only focused on this kid can play basketball, so let's just push him there. And I'm not going to worry about academics. I'm going to, you know, figure out a way to get this kid through, even if they, they have the skills. We're not really pushing for it. So it's good that you saw that um, in the students, and you were making them, you know, come out, and what you were trying to pull that out of them to get them to, um, like, like I want to say is like to get them to see the other side of things. Yeah, and, and importantly too is for us to constantly think, it's not just simply looking at the individual, but also understand how the institution and the system itself operate in the lives of these young people. So, you know, I do not live independent of what the messages my institution gives to me, and I do not live independent of the, 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 the way in which society create a kind of a image of me. And therefore, uh, and so that's why I'm always looking at in relation to how this individual's experiences can be related to the institution and the society in general. Wow. So, and that kind of leads me into your book because um, I read that one of your favorite quotes is, um, until lions start writing down their own stories, the hunters will always be the heroes. And I feel like this quote fits this book because you provide so much detail about the uh, experiences of Black Canadians and the challenges that they faced in Canada. So um, could you provide us like a brief synopsis of the book? Yeah. And, and what it's about? The book, uh, uh, of course, as I say, essays uh, mm -hmm. in, about these youth experiences. It starts off with my early work and so you would have seen my early work in the 1980s, where I interviewed many of the, so my early youth experiences with this youth as a youth worker gave me questions that I needed to answer. So I use that as, as things to influence and inform my PhD dissertation. And so I worked with them, had interviews with them and to find out about their lives. And most of them were of all, of all backgrounds, whether they were, many of them were Caribbean background, but mm -hmm. some were born here, some were immigrants, and some were in, coming from uh, working class backgrounds and middle class backgrounds. So I did, did interview them. And so I, and those were some of the early ones. So in that book, you'd find, you'd find that early work and my constant revisiting their lives because I noticed that many of many of them, even though they were, I interviewed them in 1986, 
I again interviewed some of them in, in, in the 1990s and again in the, in the 20s. And I, and I can tell you how they have done in, the, in life so far. I also think that, you know, when we interview people and we, we get them at one particular stage in life and we, we capture their lives, but sometimes revisiting them gives us a, a, a much more insights because they can, we can quote to them what they said uh, five years ago, 10 years ago, and say, how has that matched up to what you thought? So I can always remember one person whom I interviewed wanted to get into, into, uh, into becoming in the medic to work as uh, in the healthcare field. And I, I interviewed her, mm -hmm. you know, in the 19, when she was going to university. And then I interviewed her when she had completed university, maybe about eight years after. And she was at that, that time looking for a job as a hospital administrator or something like that. And I remember her telling me once she went to for, uh, for an interview and she was sitting in the lobby waiting for the person to come out for, for interview. And she was the only one sitting in the lobby. I think it was a Sunday morning. And she was waiting to be called in for the interview. And this guy, this white man came in, looked around and, and, and then so nobody, and then he said, oh, are you? And he called out her name, not knowing that she was a person. She was in the lobby waiting. Waiting all the time. Yeah. And so again, when I interviewed her years later, she's working in, in, in as an admin, hospital administrator, and she does a lot of work in, in, in that area. So it's nice to see, we can trace how, how the experiences people might have had over time might have impacted the trajectory and how they've managed to get where they are, you, you know, and the, the kinds of uh, programs and issues they've had to, they've encountered and how they've managed to encounter them. And so, so uh, those, those are some of the essays. Essays as well that in the book where I've interviewed, I remember interviewing one guy as he went to university over, uh, over 15 year period. I, I'm very curious about student, young people, or um, black people who go to live in the suburbs, especially in those white suburbs. So the title of the book, Color Matters, come out of my work with looking at some black youth who went in the, with their parents in the suburbs and were talking about their experiences there. And one young person said, color matters because no matter what they did, the uh, race and this color. Yeah, so they we are interaction with the police when they go to buy, when they go to the store in those suburban areas, it's always the color was always a factor in how they experience. And while their parents, uh, so in that that essay, I, I talked to their parents and how their parents saw saw living in the suburbs, why parents would live in the suburbs, and the opportunities they thought of they're providing their children to live in the suburbs and how children saw what living in the suburbs were. And looking at children's perception versus the parental perceptions of life in the suburbs. So those were, that was some of the essays. And what I did actually, you would have noticed that the essays are some of the early years, yes. essays that I've written in the 90s, essays I've written in the 
early 2000s, etc. So over the years. So it, it gives a historical capture yes. of the messages and the situation over time. And, and I like that. What, what they did afterwards, some of them were, were of course, updated. Some of them were dealt, um, were, were I edited some in order to update some. But I, uh, I gave them to colleagues, the essays to colleagues to, to react to or respond to uh, colleagues in England, in the US, in uh, throughout Canada, who would talk about what we, the message that were given in these essays and how they see it operating in their context, whether they live in the US or in the or in, in England. In England or in Canada, I always remember Joyce King's response to one of the essays and she starts her essays by saying, name them. And remember, she had written that prior to George Floyd. Wow, okay. But, and the book came out this year yes. after George Floyd. So it's interesting because she started, she, she listed she named young all people who were killed in by people in the US and young people were by police in the US and young people were killed in Canada by the US. Also suggesting that there wasn't any difference in with in how these young people are understood or dealt with in, in the Canadian and American situation with regard to police. Another essay that I always remember one colleague uh, at McGill University, Adele, she I, I have a book called up to no good, uh, black on black on the streets, and encountering police, and she wrote her essay was, and that essay was written in 1998, and she lives in Montreal, and she says that essay could have been written today, and this was 2019, so it, wow. it, it the, to me those in itself give some very interesting uh, communication about the experiences of black youth uh, throughout the years. And how things maybe have changed or haven't changed over the years. Yeah, because- And how they might be similar or different based on the context, whether in London, England, or in the US or in Montreal, in Canada. Right, because in the book, you provided like a historical context of, of, of Canada. And, and I said, wow, it looks very similar. <laughs> it sounds very similar to here. Like some yeah. of the same things that we were experiencing in our school system um, yeah. that you're experiencing as well. So, and, and, I, and I like that. I, I like the fact that I was able to really learn more about the history of black people in Canada because you have like this perception of Canada being like this progressive state. And then when you read, you go, oh, <laughs> things are, <laughs> things were, you know, very similar. And, and they were recent, you know, like, like you, you were talking about some of the issues in the Toronto School District and how recent some of these issues are and how they wanted to address them. So it, it gives you that perspective like, okay, things, you know, may, we are, it's not different everywhere we go, but we're starting to see like these experiences and, and we're really starting to talk about them and bring them to the forefront. So, and, and that was one thing that you also mentioned in the book was um, you were talking about uh, critical race theory. And, yeah. uh, and here in the United States, <laughs> it's been a big issue um, with critical race theory where you have um, governors who are writing laws to ban it in the school system. Um, so 
could you kind of give the the, the audience an idea, you know, like a background about critical race theory? And you also talked about cultural analysis. Um, and could you kind of talk about how you well, how you describe their two useful frameworks for like understanding the lives of Black people? Yes, I, I always think you know, I, I, I my background is sociology, so I always think that culture is it's not one of the static things. We all constantly, every day we get up, we're creating culture. The society in which we live, the people that come in or move out, all these things. Are, so culture is constantly changing. It's always in motion and never static. Neither can we say, neither can we put boundaries around culture because mm -hmm. people are going to take up points and so forth and interact. And so it's constantly changing. There are no boundaries around it. And therefore it's one of these fluid things that's constant. So I always think it's important to pay attention to the cultural context about which we're writing or in which we're writing okay. in order to be able to make sense of the experiences of people. No matter how you put it, race matters or color matters, you know, in this, the society in which, we live, in, in which we live. So to say that color is not a factor and to say that people neutrally exist, there's no, no such thing. And so I always think that when I think of, of uh, I say the cultural context is to pay attention to culture and also uh, to pay attention race. The, 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 the idea that, that race matters means that we live in a society from the very creation of the society we have started paying attention to race. Uh, the, the, the fact that indigenous people were put aside on reserves uh, once Europeans came, they had to do something with how the Europeans understood their relationship to the land and what, what could have been, what, what these people that they met here could have contributed to their development as they conceived of the society uh, with the Canada and the US. Mm -hmm. so, so and and uh, how we would pay so it's we use uh, certain kinds of cues to place people in particular ways in which we're going to interact with them. So that's why we would say that uh, you, how would you know indigenous person? You, you know, we we use different kinds of um, cues in order to understand that. And and of course, Derek Bell and others uh, with regard to critical race theory. Of course, we know that it started then in the legal system, but of course, it's been very, very prominent in education and we've put over. What it simply says for me is that whatever we, we is recognizing that we operate in a society where race operates uh, in terms of our interactions, in our perceptions of each other, the value systems that we might have, et cetera, et cetera. And when we think of inequity as exists in the society, just as inequity can be based on gender, sexual identification, mm -hmm. uh, any number of things. So inequities might be, might be related to race as well. So it's to, say that, uh, to say that we're bringing a race into discussion, it's not that it's not, you're, you're not pulling it in, it exists. So what sense are we making of it? How are we using it and how are we uh, making it operate to advantage or disadvantage others? And so to me then, 
to, to say we're looking at race or critical race theory. It's just acknowledging what exists and right. how, we, how we're operating with it. Nice, okay, yeah. So, and, and I had read, you know, in your book too, you talked about, you know, like the colorblind approach that we're trying to have and where you're trying to take out, like you said, take out race. And when you think about that, um, I guess in a way it kind of takes the power away because you're trying to say, well, race, like you said, race doesn't matter. Whereas if we're trying to empower people um, from different cultures and different backgrounds, we do have to address it. And so the, the idea of taking this approach really harm, does more harm than good and, and really no one really benefits, I guess, you know, at, as at, in the end. Oh, I, 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 absolutely. Yeah. And, and there's no such thing as a colorblind society. Right. <laughs> we, we, op, we operate based, based on these things. So it, that's not to say that, that uh, we are importing something that doesn't exist. You know, uh, when uh, Africans were brought into North America and were enslaved, you know, th there were some kinds of assumptions we make of their potential and, 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 their, and the way that they're going to be able to exist in society. And if we look back at immigration laws, both in Canada and the US, you'll be able to see what sense we made of these people who were, who were bringing from Africa. Mm. Wow, that's powerful. It's very powerful, wow, wow. So, how would a teacher going? It would, how would a teacher go about using critical race theory in the classroom? So, like, you know, how could they incorporate that or or teach to empower? You, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know if if uh, you, you know the way I'm hearing critical race theory being discussed. Mm -hmm. I find it interesting uh, because a teacher in the classroom teaches right a teacher is in the classroom uses a framework to to make to relate to students i'm not necessarily sure that uh the teacher goes into classroom i'm saying i'm using critical race theory, race theory. Uh -huh. <laughs> I, i'm not so so if the teacher is in the classroom and the teacher is going to pay attention to who are, are her students the teacher is going to pay attention to the gender of the students, the, the, and the teacher should pay attention to the race of the students, and the teacher should may pay attention to whether they, the, you know, what class background. We pay attention to all because we structure our lessons in relation to who is in the classroom, and if we can incorporate them in the in the lessons, in the curriculum, et cetera, et cetera, then, then they might be engaged students and I might be able to build a relationship. And therefore I make the learning process quite easy because students are engaged and they right. will see themselves in what we're doing. To me, to me, therefore, that's what a teacher does. And, and therefore it's not saying I'm coming in, paying, doing this, I'm coming in, because I'm teaching a class. I'm interested in the students' success. I need to understand the backgrounds for which they come and how the background might influence what they might want to learn, their interest and the opportunities they might have. And I'm a teacher must prepare them to be able to do that effectively once they leave my class or once they go on to another class or once they leave university. So, so there, therefore, 
I have to take into consideration who this student is. And the student is a composition of everything. The student is not just a black student, the student is also gendered with a sexual identification and all these other kinds of things. So I'm taking a, a, in account all those things. And, in, uh, and knowing that, therefore, I'm be, I should think that I'm being a, 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 an important educator for that student. Wow, and, and I like that because it leads into like, um, what else I wanted to talk about was you mentioned the term at risk. <laughs> and I'm a behavior analyst that, and I work in the school system. So when I go into the classrooms, the, the majority of the students who are identified with emotional uh, behavior disorder are primarily, you know, black and Hispanic. And so you had mentioned in the book, uh, the term at risk is a is a dangerous is dangerous because we are not looking at the interventions to help the students, but to place the students. And so, and that's what I see. And that's what you're talking about now is how, like when you say, when you go into the classroom, we need to really focus on the student and providing them those skills. So when you thought, when you wrote that essay, could you elaborate a little bit more about that essay, the essay of at risk and the stereotypes that play into the schooling of black kids? Yeah, I, I, you know, uh, I'm always curious because it's very long on that history of creating the at risk or thinking of the student as at risk. And I also think that is it the student that's at risk or the conditions that we provide that makes a student at risk? So, because when you think that that's at risk students, you're, you're placing at risk into the student, that at risk student. Whereas if you take a different stand and say, I'm that student and the student might be, but therefore I need to understand what are the social conditions that have might contributed the students being at risk, the family situation, the schooling situation. So therefore, for me, it's not the student I must look at, I must look at the conditions mm -hmm. that contribute to the student being at risk. And therefore my role then is to minimize or to help address so that that student does not end up being the, the casualty of the system or the society that uh, that he or she or they must survive in. So, so for me, that's why I want us to stop to not say, oh, the at-risk student, but move from that. The other thing that I, I wrote in that essay to think is how how we create at-riskness in, 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 in our attempt to, to, to reach students. And I want, I want to get away from, from our constantly creating because sometimes it's, we might be able to get more funds because we have at-risk students in our yes. classes. We might be able to deal with the students because they are at risk. You know, again, you know, I also think of how the student, how disability might become part of that at-riskness, you, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, not that the student is disabled, but we assign that at risk and, and, and that labor because that's the way we know how. So I, I don't necessarily think it's just it's the students and at risk or the teachers. But again, I constantly get back, how is the system of education and institution create these kinds of labels for us to just take off and really work with the students? So, so it's not just looking at the teacher doing these things, 
or the psychologist doing these things, but how in the society we should create these kinds of our labels, you know, because that's the only way we think that we can work with and enable and support these students. So it's, so it's again, looking more broadly beyond just the individual. The individual, yeah, absolutely. And that, and that, and that opens up a wide of things like when it comes to interventions as well, because we're, we're really focusing on what the student needs and how to support that student versus, well, you know, I'm gonna work on a behavior because that's what we do, you know, they need a behavior plan. Uh, we need to change their behavior. But like you said, we're not really looking at all the other things that come into play into this child's life. And, 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 and we're labeling, labeling them at risk, but yet we're not looking at the full picture to see what's making them at risk. So I, I, really, I really enjoyed reading that essay because in my, my field of work, I hear it all the time. And, and it's now, and, and when I hear it, it in, in the past, it really didn't bother me. But as I see more kids being put into the system, and like you said, they're not being helped, they're just being placed, that really kind of helped me to change my frame of thinking about the term and how to help students. So I really enjoyed reading that one. So thank you for that. You, <laughs> uh, another essay that you talked about is mentorship. And um, as a youth, I participated in the mentorship program and it helped me tremendously um, because it provided me with the tools to understand the world. So what are some of the ways that we can structure mentorship programs so they're not about stereotypes of children coming from fatherless homes or struggling mothers? <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly, you know, so yeah, there are these kids who need mentors, you know, because, you know, this, this black male doesn't have a father, therefore he needs a mentor. And we're going to look for a black male mentor for him. And, and this guy wants to become a medical practitioner. Therefore, we're going to look for a black male doctor for, for, for him to, to do those. And, 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 you know, one of my unease with mentorship is I have done it, therefore you can. You know, I've made it, therefore you can. You can. And, and therefore, you, you know, again, you, you might have made it, but what were the social conditions that were around you at that time to enable you to make it? What were the situations that you experienced that provided that? And therefore, I could work with young people and, and they, they might not be making it. Not that they don't try, because we can, we can have a whole lot of young people, we can mentor them, but if sometimes the conditions larger beyond them and you as a mentor do not open up to enable some of the, the aspirations, the interests, the, the dedication, all the effort, if some of those things don't open up, therefore they would never get, get where they want to get. So again, it's, a, it's moving beyond just this, I'm your mentor, therefore I'm going to do it. But I think the mentor has to also understand that I might have made it, but what are the conditions under which I make it? And is my mentee experiences the same conditions or are they different? And what do I have to learn as a mentor to be able to mentor this person knowing that there's a different conditions that he or she or they have to deal with? 
you, you see? Yeah, so it's absolutely. not just simply, I'm a black male, I've made it, therefore I can be, I can mentor. It's much more complicated than that. I also, I also feel that too often when we think of mentorship, we, 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 we think of, of mentor as because it, um, the black male, therefore I, but it's not, sometimes it's not just simply the individual. I might like you as a mentor because of the way you, you handle a question, how you talk through issues, et cetera, et cetera. So what is, so your mentorship for me might be more of what you convey in terms of not as an individual, not the social or political, but also other kinds of things. And therefore we have to see mentorship as not just simply black male, black, black male, but also could black mentorship might be other kinds of things, you know, because what, what about how many uh, single mothers, you know, I remember doing some interviews with some, some, with some males mm -hmm. who were, who were, they, they were, they, they like being teachers in elementary school or in law school because they think these black young students needed mentors and their support. All these, and many of these males I was talking to who thought these young black males needed their support to become successful, they were raised by single parents, single mothers, but yet, and they were successful, they're now teachers. So obviously, it's, it's not just simply the male presence. Right. It's something else that we have to start thinking about uh, that might have been supported and enabled some of these things. So mentorship is not, is that, is not just simply this easy equation. Yes, uh, I'm your mentor, therefore for you can, I can mentor you. The other, the other important thing too, a mentor's open to learning from that person. Because if you, if you don't have respect for what the person can teach you, therefore, what good is the mentorship? Because exactly. I think mentorship should also be two-way actually. Because that younger person, I think, are inviting you or giving you insights into his or her or their world that you might not have thought about but it's important for you to take into account because we live in an interdependent world and we're not, we, we adults also are interacting with young people. So therefore we have to know about them. We have to know about their lives and not, and not overshadow their lives because you now, I'm not, now your mentor. I'm not going to pay attention to the social conditions, the, the way you understand the world, et cetera, et cetera. So let's have serious good conversations as mentors and mentee, sharing how we understand the world and respecting where we're coming from. And therefore, in, through the, those kinds of interactions, we both build an understanding that uh, we can benefit from together. I like that. And, and that's, that was my experience as a, as a mentee um, because there were a lot of things that I had, you know, I had these questions and my mentor, he would listen and he would help me. And it would, like you said, it was a two-way street because he would talk about college and that was something that I wanted. But then yet he looked at my conditions to say, okay, well, how can I, what do you need in order to get to college? So it really, it was like you said, wasn't a way of, well, this is what you need to do and this is how you got to do it. And I'm going to show you. 
It's more of let's work together and see how we could make it work for you. Yeah. And 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 I and I like the like like you said, I like the approach that you discussed in your book about mentoring shift programs, because that's something that I'm interested in doing once I graduate um, as well. So it, it helped with that framework is um, of, of thinking about uh, ways of teaching youth of um, to be successful in, in this world. Yeah, and too often we because we are adults. We are, you see, we live in such an adult-focused world, and and there's an arrogance as adults we bring to our relationship with young people, as if we know everything and we're going to tell you what you need to know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and therefore, and therefore, sometimes that. And too often the mentorship program is premised on we are adults and you young people, we need, we know, we know what you need to know. And we're going to establish a mentorship program so that we teach you what you need to know. But mentorship program to me can be enhanced with if we see it as a two-way street where we are collectively working on an issue uh, to advance the opportunities for both people. Yeah. So it's good points. I like that. In your article, When Dreams Take Flight, uh, you discuss the experiences of creating the Afrocentric school and the quest for equity for Black youth. Could you talk more about this program and the outcomes of the school? Yeah, uh, you know, one of, one of the things uh, I, I think about when we create, when that school was created, interestingly, I was talking to the principal of that school, a few hours ago. When that school was, was created, we, we created it because we think that, that yes, black students need the kinds of curriculum, the kinds of uh, role models, the, the kinds of uh, teachers and parents to be able to, be, to advance themselves. And therefore, but is, is, it, is it that what they need? You know, we have to always wonder we create these, this is what we think it's going to go, but we have to sometimes sit back and say, is this working? Mm -hmm. So for that school then, we created the school and we provide teachers, et cetera, et cetera, in that school that would enable and provide a curriculum to, to respond to this school. And remember, this is because in many cases, we, we are paying attention to the fact the black youth in the school system not getting the kinds of education that they need. It's not culturally attuned to them and we need them to be able to succeed. And, and also to build on the fact that parents think that probably education is the way that they're going to get social mobility, they're going to get. And so there's a big investment in education. So because if I have nothing else, I can make sure you go to school, I can make sure that you, you learn and I can make sure that you're successful. Yeah. So the Afrocentric school was built on that premise to enable those support. And, and what we did, we, what we did in the research with the Afrocentric school, how was it doing? Was, was, was it responding to the needs of the student and the parents and we, and we we worked with the school, we worked with teachers, and that's what that essay is about, to work with teachers to, to see how the teachers responded to 
not only students, but also parents and everybody around them. And, and, but one of the things that we, that's also important in that is how we understand Afrocentricity. Different people have different interpretations of it. And so that's what we were trying to say. What is it, what, how is it understood? Mm -hmm. And how is it used and worked in that school system, in that particular school, in order for the students to be successful? To be successful. Wow. So, and the school is still going today. Wow. And, um, and this was a part of like the, an initiative with the, 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 the public school district. So they wanted to see something and they were in support of it. So that's yeah. good. It, it has been because for years, parents had been asking for something to address the situation of Black students. Because over and over again, research has been showing the black students are not doing as well as their peers. They're more likely to, to drop out. They're more likely not to, not to achieve in the same way. And also to address the fact that teachers would come to them thinking of them as having particular kinds of her underperformance academically because of who they are, their background, et cetera, et cetera. So parents were, were very strong advocates for school that would not do that, but, but a school that would center the cultural background of the students and provide them the kinds of education where they can relate both to this material that's been brought to them and the teachers who are teaching them. Wow, so that's powerful, powerful. Now, my last question for you is, what advice would you give an early career researcher like me <laughs> who wants to focus on research within the black community? I always never give advice, but oh. I, get, <laughs> I, I, I engage in possible. You know, okay. um, I, I think it's extremely useful. One of the things that I, I pay attention to too often over the years that uh, we, we, we as a community, we just do things. And sometimes we, we forget that we should research it or we should document it. So too often it's as if we're starting all over because this has never been done before. But of course people have done it before just that it was never documented. Right. So, so I always encourage us uh, as black people to constantly, okay, let's research this, let's document it. And, and so to, to en enable and engage people to, to think of the value of documenting or the value of research. So what, what's important for me, so, and you use the Afrocentric school as an example, we started off with, this is what we're going to do. And, I, and we started off research with it. And then a year after we went, did this work, did this not work? And if it worked, why did it work? So we're constantly, questioning, looking in, doing the research necessary in order to see why it worked, why it didn't, why it didn't work. And if it didn't work, what, what modifications did we put in to make it respond to the students we expected to respond to? And then we, so we're constantly documenting and building as we document. Because I'm arguing that if you do not methodically examine and do things, you might just simply start and if it fails, you don't know why it fails because you never built, built research into it. Right. But, but if you, you deliberate in, in methodically researching it, then you, you, become, you, you become knowledgeable. 
On another hand too, it's also a way in which others can get a sense of what you tried and how it worked and how it might work in their context and what are the differences that they might have to pay attention in their context for it to work for them. So for me then, I always encourage research. I, I pay attention to how, how you are documented and the different ways, the, the youth action research and the number of scholars in, in uh, very, very good youth action research uh, in, in the US, youth participatory action research is too. There are also community participatory action research as well. There are also the, but you know, one interesting thing about research there, we, sometimes we like numbers, 80% of them said sex, 70% of them, but those numbers do not tell us the whole story. So we have to, we have to also move beyond just those numbers or those ideas and those individuals, uh, those numbers to also pay attention to what the qualitative research tell us. We need to capture the voices and the experience beyond just the numbers in order to fully appreciate what the experiences are. So I like the mixed methods approach. I also like the participatory action research approach. And and with and I remember working in one school as a a, year, a few years ago. I connected with the teacher who she was a social science teacher, and I encouraged her to okay, let's turn this social science course into a research course, social science research course for these years. So the first semester, the students would give them the basics of research, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and then the research attempt was to for them to do a research a ethnographic research about their community what they liked about their community what was attractive about what would they sell to somebody about their community etc cetera, etc cetera. documenting that with by they all got cameras to take the, the, the respective pictures of things of course we have to pay attention to that they don't they people's pictures and then, you know, get, yeah. <laughs> but get, they, they get cameras to take photographs and, and, and so forth. And they would, and they, so they will build their, their research and they might get newspaper articles, everything that, that, that they see relevant to their community. And they, and at school, they come back and they, and they might've done interviews, personal interviews. And so when they came back to class, the presentation was, was their essays, the, what they talk, the, the photographs, et cetera, et cetera, wow. that talk to the, so they were researchers. And it's to have them to think that they're constantly doing some analysis and research. So the researcher is not only the scientist who comes in, we have to have the young people think that they're constantly engaged in those kinds of ideas as well. So that was one semester. The second semester, we we had a different group of students and we, we had them do their research. And their research was to also find out about their, their own lives and where they are in the school and the school system. And so they had to choose people to interview. They could interview their best friend, they could interview their parents, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a kind of utter ethnography of themselves that they would, would present. And, and of course, they were for the first time talking to the parents about their parents' education because they needed to understand how their parents' education might be influenced what their parents expect of them. 
in school and how that parental role might, might help uh, complicate some of their relationship and why the parents might not have time to come to school, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So again, so again, those become very, very good, interesting research. So, you know, youth participatory action research and that I do a lot with some, with some students. You know, I remember uh, doing this last year, summer, we were, this was, um, we had about maybe 40 young people, black young people, and it was on, on, online. We, so they were doing research and they had to go out and do research. And I, I was quite intrigued for, for the entire six weeks or so, the, some of these, some of the youth would never turn on their camera and never, and, but anyway, they had to do, do research. What surprised me, and I didn't anticipate, one group researched on the mental health issues. Wow. With, for, for, uh, among young people, et cetera, et cetera. And it was that presentation for the, this guy in this, in this, in the, in the, uh, in our weekly thing would, he, he would talk quite a bit, but he never turned his camera on, never. But when he was presenting his research, he, for the first time he turned his camera on. <laughs> first time you, you, and it was very unusual. You never would have thought that they would have looked at mental health issues among young people. And so the mental health issues. So it's some, so it's sometimes it's in our research then, it's not always the thing that we come in with the information, but research is to elicit information that people have their own analysis as well, in order for us to, to advance the work that we're doing. So I, I see that as important to the research that we do. Wow, that is, that's beautiful right there. And I, and I like that, like you said, that it's not about numbers, but it's about capturing the, the lives of the people and truly understanding what makes things work and not just looking at a, a, a number to say, yes, it was successful or not. So if wow. you notice one of the essays in, in the book, in the book to refer to Kalamatis, one guy I interviewed, I, I don't remember his name, I interviewed him, I think over a 15 year period, he's now a teacher in the school. So, and yes, and then I, then I interviewed him, wrote up the essay and, and that I, I remember when the very first time I interviewed him, he said something I really liked, and I wrote that in the essay because he thought the Canadian education system wasn't wasn't good and wasn't responding to black males, and he was an immigrant and he thought he had a better education back home, etc. So I wrote that in the essay. So I gave him to read in order to 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 see this is my analysis of what you said. He wanted me to take that out, and oh. uh, and which is interesting as a researcher, as a researcher we have ideas that we know that we want to convey. Mm -hmm. That's very useful and very, but, and while this person's name was not going to be on the paper, at least I felt it was important because he, he would know what he wants communicated. And he asked me to take that out and I took it out. But it, it's important to, uh, to pay attention to what do people want to know? Even though I'm not there, yeah. uh, therefore 
The other interesting thing about research, especially with racialized people and people who ne don't necessarily get a voice to put out into the world, you know, we we disguise, we use pseudonyms, et cetera, et cetera. And there have been times when I interview people and they say, no, I want you to use my name because I want people to know I'm saying this. Uh, and, and so those are some of the interesting tensions between what we as researchers do and how and how people whom we interview want to be known. And again, that essay that I talked about with this young man, and that's in the book. Notice I, I wrote up this paper and at the end of that essay, he wrote his reaction to what I wrote. Ah, yeah, okay. So I have to go back and, and, and look at that one there. Yeah, absolutely, because the reactions to the essays were very powerful and I really liked it because like you said, it brought a perspective from when you wrote it or, um, or like a certain time period to where we are today. And, the, and there was one essay where I, I think he wanted to be an athlete. Um, he was a track star and there were things that as he moved on in life and he did the same thing. He, as he reflected on things in the past, he noticed how he had changed so much because he didn't feel comfortable in being in Canada. And, and then all of a sudden he said, no, my life has changed. And like you said, he moved out into the suburbs and you know he started his own family. So I, I, I like the fact that as an early researcher, we really need to really focus on capturing the moments as you collect your data and really have that opportunity to reflect, to see those changes occur within the people. And yeah. that's for that the group that you're studying, yeah. and and I and with the and being in the uh, participatory action research, you're you're you know you like also involved in the research as well. well uh, so, absolutely. So yeah. it's good. And the research re researchers are not neutral people. Researchers are not are not don't have a, a coming with an unconscious bias. Researchers, your questions that you ask. At the very beginning of the question is informed by your race, your ethnicity, your all these experiences of yours. Otherwise, how could you have a question to answer unless you know about that question from your experiences? So we, we have to admit who we are and how we might be influenced, the data we gather, how we gather the data, and the questions we ask. And, and so researchers are not neutral. And that's one thing that we need to keep in mind. <laughs> Whether, and to, to assume that even the numbers, even though you're quantitative to research and you're sending out questionnaires, you might think that, yes, that's neutral. Of course not. Because the way you construct the questions, what the questions you think that you should be asking or how, are all influenced by your experiences. And that experience comes from a lived experience or what you've read. And what you've read is informed by the, the the places that you traverse, you know, all, all these kind of things. So we're mm -hmm. not we're not neutral. Wow. So I want to thank you for your time today. I want people to go out and pick up the book, Colors Matters, Essays on the Experiences, uh, Education and Pursuit of Black Youth. It is a very good and powerful book. And I recommend it. I've been telling my uh, coworkers about it as well. So it's really something that if you want to know about education and you want to know about the experiences of, of, of Black youth, it's definitely a book that 
just because it's written in Canada doesn't just only apply to Canada. So I think it's, uh, I wanna say thank you for your time. And uh, I look forward to doing this again with you. Thank you for having me and thanks me for everything. Thank you for listening to this edition of EdTech Hour. I'm Dr. Kelly Torres, the department chair of the Educational Psychology and Technology Program of the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. This podcast was completed through the support of our dedicated faculty, staff, and students. To learn more about the Educational Psychology Technology Program, or if you're interested in being on the EdTech Hour podcast, please reach out to me at ktorres at the chicagoschool.edu.